people um, to come, uh, but it's also great to be able to um, join online. So without further ado, um, I um, share my presentation with you and just <clears throat> a word in advance. Um, so behavioral analysis of humanitarian negotiators, um, and we termed it then learning from cognition that varies a little bit from the title. And uh, but the reason is that it's really still work on progress. So everything I'm presenting today is preliminary and we haven't totally exhausted the data yet. So there might be questions arising, which I cannot answer because we haven't gone there yet um, to analyze the data. Um, so that's a joint research project by um, myself, as well as Thomas Brody from the Hebrew University, Christoph Engel from the Max Planck Institute for Research on Collective Goods, and Katharina Luckner also from the University of Hamburg. <clears throat> and the reason being that we are such a big research group because it's a big project. Um, and I'm giving you a little bit of a sense um, later. So um, I have to put this small. Okay. So um, um, what's our research motivation? And you might have seen, actually, we started this research before the UN guidance on behavioral science came out. Um, but here's a quote for, by uh, the UN Secretary General Guterres. Behavioral science is a critical tool for the UN to progress on its mandate. It can contribute to combating poverty, improving public health and safety, preventing and managing crises, promoting gender and economic equality, tackling corruption, strengthening peace building, and all the SDGs. Um, and it should also make the public sector more efficient, um, including the international organizations. So what you see here is that uh, the UN by now really has been turned behavioral. It's following the World Bank on that, which had an earlier report in 2019. The World Development Report was devoted to behavioral sciences. Um, but what you see is that they really believe that behavioral sciences can help international organizations in their policies and, for that matter, um, the world. Now, um, hitherto, um, international law, as well as the policies, relied to a large extent and still does on the rational choice paradigm for its actors. So when we draft treaties, when we talk about compliance, it's all basically uh, based on rational choice assumptions. Uh, at least, you know, if you look at IR theories, certainly by the institutionalists, certainly by the realists, um, constructivists have been different, but without using cognitive sciences. Now, um, psychological and experimental research challenges this rational choice paradigm. So people are only boundedly rational using biases and heuristics and make co cognitive mistakes. Now, this research comes mainly from experiments with students in the lab, um, or laypersons, um, and I'm going to come back to that. So we used to readily assume rational choice or rational actors, and now maybe too readily assume boundedly rational actors. And I'm saying this, and some of you may wonder, because I, I, I think I can say that Thomas Brody and I have been have been since years um, pushing for international law taking into account behavioral sciences. And now suddenly we say, oops, maybe we should be cautious, okay? But you know, it should all be evidence-based. And what I'm presenting to you today is a sort of evidence uh, we got. 
So the question is whether we can readily use behavioral sciences without regard to specific actors and specific context. Hafner Burton in an Agile Unbound contribution um, on the limitations or limits of the behavioral approach to international law um, says that the biggest problem of using behavioral insights for international law is that it's extremely difficult to recruit actual decision makers in a way that allows for direct study. And that is correct. So if you think about, for example, studies on judges, uh, you don't get international law judges. And they're also not sufficient of them uh, to have to be able to really conduct uh, um, uh, a sufficient statistical analysis. Um, we have done, I with others, with Susan Frank and others, we have done a study with international arbitrators and there we do find indeed that they find show biases and heuristics like everybody else. They're a little bit better there. Now, I got the um, access to the competent center of, of humanitarian negotiators and negotiations. And I need to tell you a little bit what that is. So that is a project and now it's uh, installed uh, in Geneva. It's adjunct to the um, ICRC. And it's basically driven by international humanitarian organizations such as uh, the UNHCR, uh, UNICEF, but also NGOs like Médecins Sans Frontières is a, is a frequent participant and they also finance that center. And, and they said, well, it would be super interesting to understand how humanitarian negotiators um, make decisions. So basically we got that opportunity and the access to those professionals um, to better understand frontline humanitarian negotiators as agents of international law or as more specifically IHL and to contribute to bet better practices through negotiation training. Of course, from the CCHN side, the, the, they, they want better, better informed training. And when they train now, they basically rely on rational choice negotiation theory, um, which might may be insufficient. So what are those frontline humanitarian negotiators? They're basically all those negotiating for hum humanitarian needs on the ground. So there is not a profession of humanitarian negotiators, but usually all frontline humanitarians are negotiators because they constantly negotiate on something, be it with government, be it with rebel groups, um, whatever. Um, or communities, um, so, so they're constantly negotiating. And the question is then, do humanitarian negotiators think differently than laypersons? And if so, when and in which situations? And why is that important? Because we could have gone there and I could have written an easy manual, negotiation manual for, for the humanitarian negotiators, just basically using all the insights which we have from experiments, but again, mainly the students, and tell them, well, think about that, think about that, and you know, try to, to, to show them um, uh, where they might be making mistakes. Um, and we, from the very beginning, thought that, well, maybe they are different. They're very, maybe some of you do know them. Um, they're very impressive people, I have to say, um, but very normal people as well. Um, and the question is, and, and, and they negotiate, sometimes in, in really, really difficult situations. So sometimes with a gun at the head. So, so how does that impact their decision-making? 
And what does that imply if they are different for the external validity of a behavioral experiments used by the UN more generally and IHL actors more specifically? Because the UN hitherto largely relies on, if you look at who's behind there, it's you know, um, Kahneman or Sunstein, they use the experiments of everyday actors or, or everyday subjects, so students. So what did we do? Um, we originally wanted to go to the workshops. Um, the CCHN holds workshops all over the world, usually, usually in the crisis situations, um, uh, crisis um, um, spots. Um, but due to COVID, we, we couldn't do it and they didn't do their workshops anymore. They did them online. Um, so uh, we did a vignette study um, using Qualtrics. Um, we had 119 humanitarian negotiators with an average of 4.7 years of experience. We also tested 57 students of Hebrew and Hamburg universities uh, with a legal or international relations background. And we tested 154 laypersons via prolific. Now we put a series of questions and some of them are IHL framed, we call them framed. So they are vignettes in the humanitarian context or a typical situation they would be facing. And then we ask the same question in an abstract way. So A and B and C, so unframed. Um, and we put all those questions to those subjects. So what were our research questions? So first, are humanitarian negotiators equally subject to cognitive biases as lay people? So the question of expertise, does expertise make a difference? Or, and research question two was whether their biases depend on the context of decision-making. So whether they are deciding differently in a neutral or in a humanitarian context. So those were the framed versus unframed experiments. And we tested four biases which are well-proven, often used um, in all the policy um, advice uh, or used by national nudge units. So they're well settled biases. The first one is the hindsight bias. So um, humanitarian negotiators perceive past events as having been more predictable than they actually were. Hypothesis two, when faced with a concrete humanitarian negotiation, humanitarian negotiators are influenced by irrelevant numeric anchors when taking decisions. So anchoring bias. Hypothesis three, um, humanitarian negotiators resolve disputes based on representative cues rather than deliberative reason, the so-called base rate error. And hypothesis four, humanitarians are prone to over-optimism when evaluating the prospects of their missions, um, so-called over-optimism bias. So we tested all those. Um, so in other words, we expect humanitarian negotiators to be susceptible to cognitive biases, but to respond differently to lay people, sometimes at least. And we expect them to respond differently in a humanitarian context, so in framed situations, in contrast to more abstract vignettes. And here are our results. So first, the hindsight bias. So the hindsight bias, basically, I should have put this all up. Um, oops, sorry. The hindsight bias um, basically um, tells you, it's, it's like, it's a little bit like, I knew it all along. So what it, um, um, 
what it does, what, what it says is basically that people perceive past events as more predictable than they actually were. And that matters and has been tested, for example, with judges when they adjudicate on tort law or in the context of police violence, um, stuff like that, okay? Um, now, here's the framed vignette we have put. Um, imagine humanitarian negotiator H, whose team is coordinating a medical aid in an area where kidnapping is a frequent occurrence. Most instances of kidnapping are financially motivated and thus involve demands for ransom. The kidnapping groups have also targeted humanitarian workers. Village V dearly needs medical supplies that the team is able and willing to deliver. They have delivered such aid to villages in the region 10 times in the past. In one case, the team member was kidnapped but released on ransom a few days later. Should H send a team member A to the village? H decides to send team member A, so that's the neutral question. And then um, we vary between the groups, right? So one group got, um, H decides to send the team member A to the village, and A encounters kidnappers on the way after the organization has paid a substantial amount of money. A week later, he returns to the team. Do you think H decision was appropriate? And then the second, Variation is um, H decides to send team member A to the village. A returns without encountering problems. So that's a positive scenario. Scenario, do you think H decisions was appropriate? And we always have put um, H instead of how would you decide? Because we want to create personal distance to the question. Because when in 2019, um, I, we, we conducted it on the annual conference before COVID, we conducted a workshop and we tested with few people, a very, very, very well-known Asian disease problem issue. Um, and we totally didn't get the results which we were expecting. And when we afterwards talked to them, it seems that they wouldn't do something if they feel it contradicts IHL. So that's actually the second study we are conducting. Um, so we thought, but we know that they do. Uh, we know that they do not adhere to the principles of IHL all the time. Um, they just wouldn't talk about it. And certainly not the I ICRC people because the ICRC keeps everything secret, okay? So, um, so, so we try to create this sort of personal distance. Now, um, this is the results. Um, negotiators are more cautious under both scenarios, but also show hindsight bias, okay? So what you see here, those are the student, this is the student population. I left out the lay people now. This is student population here. Um, and this is the negotiators. And what you see that is with the negative scenario, um, they go even less. So they do also show their inside bias, but in, in generally they are much more cautious um, than lay people, which is in a way a good sign. Now then, if this is basically the same scenario, it's just abstract, okay? Um, in, 10 past, in 10 past decisions, D has decided to do A, one case was a failure, should D decide in favor of A? And then you have again a positive and a negative, okay? Um, and this is what we find here. So here, the difference between humanitarians and students disappears. 
Um, so that basically indicates to us that the hindsight bias is context dependent for humanitarian negotiators, okay? Let me turn to anchoring. Um, anchoring is also a very well proven bias um, where you have, um, you can have legal anchoring, but you can also here we focus on the more better proven numerical quantitative anchoring, which is well established in unframed situations. So for example, which was the first um, um, study done by Kahneman and Tversky, Kahneman got the Nobel Prize, the Econ Nobel Prize for all those studies. Um, the Wheel of Fortune. So what they did is they manipulated the Wheel of Fortune and had it stop at 10 and at 65. And then after that, they asked participants to, to, to name um, the percentage of African countries in the United Nations. And, you know, the Wheel of Fortune obviously doesn't have anything to do with the number of African countries um, um, in, in the United Nations. That's a study from 1974. Um, and still what, what they found is that the answers were very close to the anchor. So those who got a 10 were, would be saying something like around 10, you know, could be 12, 15, whereas those who got the 65 had much higher numbers. Another one is the age of Gandhi's death, um, where they were asked whether, um, 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 they, they had anchors of nine and 140. And again, here, um, Gandhi's death um, actually was at, at 78. Um, but here again, they found an influence on, um, on, uh, uh, on the age which was stated by the respondents, which should be unconnected, okay? And so irre irrelevant, um, so, so, so they asked actually whether he had died at nine or at 130, 40, so both are, irrelevant anchors in the sense of it must be clear that Gandhi has not died either at nine or at 140, but still it matters, uh, mattered on, on, on what age they then assumed. Um, so what, 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 um, what was the vignette? You're about to go on the mission delivering medical supplies to a camp for displaced person, uh, people that is experiencing an outbreak of a new Ebola-like virus, it is unclear, and we did that before COVID. It is unclear how many of the about 10,000 people in the camp are infected, but help must be administered immediately. Thus, you can only work with the supplies at hand. You have access to a sizable amount of a drug that has been used to treat patients infected by other variants of the Ebola virus. And then over dinner with the team, your colleague talks about a very difficult humanitarian mission she participated in on a different continent. So totally different situation, right? Where, and then again, you had the treatment, either they got a thousand people were saved or 10,000 people were saved because food and clean drinking water was delivered on time. And then you ask how many of the people in the camp can be saved? So in absolute numbers, and here are the results. I hope you can see that on your screen. So what we see here is the negotiators and they, the high anchor indeed made a difference, but it's not statistically significant. The students, we didn't really find any effect, whereas with lay persons on prolific, we did find a nice differentiated effect, okay? So it seems that the humanitarian context seems to de-bias anchoring 
Um, but still for anchoring for laypersons, it's still visible. The, so the students are something in between, right? Um, because they have a legal and IR background. Um, but again, you know, the numbers are not so high um, of the students. So, so, so take this with a note of caution. When does it matter? So we had here only the framed vignette, no unframed comparison, which in a way is a pity, but you know, ex post, you are always smarter. Um, um, so we didn't find any significant anchoring effect in humanitarian negotiators or students, but in laypersons. Um, so it could be that the humanitarian context might matter and needs further research because their anchoring effect really, if you, if you, if you talk to experimentalists, there's one effect which is always there, anchoring. It always works, but here it did. And we are not sure why um, it could be really, so we attribute it to the context. Next one, uh, base rate neglect. So um, that's another very well-known bias and actually probably the basis of all sorts of prejudice. Um, so the base rate fallacy is basically that when you, when you would be totally rational when calculating probabilities, you use base rates um, as an obvious approach for estimations when no other information is provided. So the classical, uh, entrance tests, for example, to universities um, or to, I don't know, uh, McKinsey likes to do something like that. They would ask you, so how many, you know, uh, McDonald's are in the world, for example. So you don't have, you need to have some assumption about base rates and then you try to, to, to go from there, right? But mostly people make evaluations based on surface similarities rather than base rates or statistical realities. And the tendency to ignore base rates and prefer, and so, so they have the tendency to ignore base rates and prefer individuating information over general information when the former is available. And what I what you have here is like a sketch. Um, so, so you have Steve who's shy, um, and then you ask people, is Steve a salesperson or is Steve a librarian? And then you immediately would say, well, it must be, you know, you associate um, shyness more with a librarian than with a salesperson, right? It's like your personal impression. And it's probably true because maybe li the librarians you know are more shy. But if you look at the base rate, so the number of people who are actually salespeople and who are librarians, um, then you should say, well, um, it's a, sales, a salesperson, okay? Um, and I, I always did this with my students and I had, um, I, I was a bit mean. So I let it put a pic of a person with glasses and a suit and, um, and said, well, uh, um, uh, Mark likes to listen to Mozart. Um, and then what is more probable, is it a literature professor or a truck driver? And, you know, usually they would always go for the literature professor, uh, even though of course they have much fewer literature professors than truck drivers, even though that might be changing in the UK now, if truck driving gets more, uh, get, gets more attractive because they must go up with the salaries. <laughs> um, that was a mean joke. Um, now, um, so, so the classical base rate test is, is the following. Um, uh, this has been tested with more or less the same numbers on other issues uh, in tort law with judges. Um, so it's all about um, the base rate. Um, 
and we kind of adapted it to the humanitarian context. So your organization has teamed up with the producer of a drug that helps individuals in the early stages of the virus infection to lead to a longer meaningful life. The producer has given you permission to use the drug on recipients in least developed countries and has made it your responsibility to guarantee that the drug is not sold in developed countries. The organization has found ways to fulfill this guarantee, but must now decide which communities to serve. The total amount of the drug is only sufficient to serve a small fraction of the population. You want to find the community where the administration of the drug would be most effective. Assume you have the following information. Of a population of 20,000, 10 are expected to be infected. You have been able to conduct tests on the entire community. The test shows positive in 90% of infected people. The test also shows positive in one of a million well, also one in thousand of uninfected people. Your team leader asks you whether the drug should go to this community. As an input for her decision, she wants you to quantify the probability that the individual with a positive test actually is infected. What's your estimate? So um, that was their task and the correct answer is 31.1, okay? So this, uh, those are the results. Um, so, the base rate neglect here. So we find like, um, um, so, so we have the students and then negotiators in the first two one, and this is for the lay persons, right? Neutral and framed. So, so we need to redo the graphs a little bit, but um, didn't have time for that now. Um, but you, you'll see the results well. Um, so um, you can see that the, the humanitarian negotiators were better in the base rate neglect, but they were not better they were actually worse in the neutral frame. So we did the base rate issue, not only in a frame, but also in an unframed or neutral context. Um, and that is, that is interesting because it seems again that context matters. Um, and then, or maybe they are just th thinking more slowly when they feel they are in their own context, in the humanitarian context. And here you see the laypersons, okay? So, um, for all three groups, the humanitarian context matters. They were all better in the humanitarian context than in the neutral context. Um, humanitarians are much more likely to avoid base rate neglect in the humanitarian context, but they are worse, interestingly, in comparison to students and to laypersons in a non-framed neutral experiment. So again, that shows that the context really matters. And over-optimism. That's an interesting one because again, over-optimism, everybody is over-optimistic and it's often explained as an evolutionary trait because otherwise, you know, why would you get married? Or if you ask people when they get married, whether they would feel get divorced and they would say no. But of course, like I don't, depending on the country, you have 30% of the population getting divorced. Or if you have a startup, um, Startups, they all think their business will survive, even though we know that, I don't know, 70% uh, goes bust after a year or two, right? So over-optimism might, might be a very good, evolutionary speaking, a very good trait, right? So you compare, but, you know, we also know that, um, I don't know, 85% of the population think that they are over-average drivers, which is a logical impossibility. And we found the same thing, for example, with judges and arbitrators, um, they, you, you, you would, like the arbitrators were a bit more modest than the US American judges, but um, 
more or less, you know, it's like something between 80 and 90% of them think that they're better than the average judge. Um, so it's, in, or most people think, you know, you, you, you see it every day. I won't catch COVID or I will not die of cancer, or even though we know that half of the population at one point in their life has cancer. Okay, so, so, so there are a lot of, of, of those issues, well proven. Now, what's our vignette? And we wanted to see whether they are over-optimistic concerning themselves because of this phenomenon, all others are, but not me, okay? So you're working for an organization N in a state undergoing civil war with a mounting humanitarian crisis. Organization N is part of a coalition of 10 governmental and non-governmental aid agencies active in humanitarian activity in the region. The governor of the province where aid is to be delivered to the civilian population has confirmed access to the coalition aid groups to the affected region. You are preparing delivery of humanitarian aid when you're informed that the central government has revoked the visas for all humanitarian agencies with mandates to all regions of the state. The central government has issued a press release according to which there's merely some civil unrest in parts of the country and therefore foreign humanitarian aid is not necessary. You have a cut that was before Ethiopia. Okay, we did not write that. Um, <laughs> so, so all that uh, are typical situations. You, you find them all the time. You have a contact to the Ministry of Interior and at a private meeting request um, clarifications. The ministry assures you that there has been an error and the visas will not be revoked. No formal assurance has been provided, however. What is the likelihood for your team to retain their visas and continue their humanitarian missions? And we ask them to give the likelihood in percent. And then we also ask them, what is the likelihood for humanitarian workers of other agencies in the coalition to retain their visa? And again, give the likelihood in percent. And this is what we find. Um, interestingly, um, you know, they all more or less range through um, at 50, um, which is a classical focal point. Um, here you find in the dotted line, you have the students. Um, so they're a little bit more optimistic. So they exhibit a little optimism bias, whereas the negotiators really don't. Okay, um, the laypersons also don't. Um, so, so, so this is interesting because, as I told you before, over-optimism is so well proven. And the only people who are not over-optimistic are those clinically depressed. Um, and it seems that at least the humanitarians um, seem not to have over-optimism. If, if you talk to them, if you go, and I've been to some of those places and those workshops before COVID, um, they are under a lot of strain for sure. I'm not saying they're depressed, but they're under a lot of strain. Um, so, but also since we also tested the students and the layperson, somehow context seems to matter. To conclude, um, so humanitarian negotiations share similar cognitive biases with lay people, but we cannot equate it. So, with regard to some biases and in their frontline context, they are more cautious vis-a-vis -vis anchoring and essentially over-optimism. Insights on bounded rationality, we find, can thus not easily be transposed from lay people and context-free vignettes. 
to professionals in their context. So our takeaway from that is that the UN needs to proceed with caution in applying behavioral economics and cognitive psychological insights because the experiment from the lab cannot be so easily transposed. I mean, external validity has always been an issue discussed in experimental economics, um, but there are few comparisons with lay people, and then there are studies who show um, professionals show it as well. Um, others say that um, professionals show it less, um, but we need much more research on that. But this sort, even though it's like nitty gritty, we are just talking about frontline humanitarian negotiators, we are just talking about four biases. Um, this is the sort of research I believe we need if you want to give evidence-based policy advice, which helps us to, because this research helps us to understand how actors decide when applying international law generally, there we need more research, sure, and, and IHL more specifically. Now, humanitarians are not the only actors in IHL, um, but um, there's of course more to do. We hope to do a study with the UN Office of Counterterrorism. Um, so they, they, they also turn to behavioral, um, but of course, for example, can, it's, it's, not, it's basically impossible to do experiments with terrorists. So, so you're doing experiments with counterterrorists. Um, and we are doing a second follow-up study, which, is, which I'm not reporting here, also with the humanitarians on uh, application of international law. So, so the interpretation of, of IHL. Um, but I'm not reporting because it's still ongoing. Okay, so I, I stop here. That was it from my side and I'm much looking forward to any questions. Thank you, Anna, for this really informative and also uh, intriguing presentation. And please join me to give a virtual round of applause to Anna, our speaker. Yes, and um, now we move to the discussion part. And, and thank you, Natasha, my co-convener, um, to remind all of you that you can just use the risk hunt function at the bottom of the tab in the reaction tab, or just type, I have a question in the chat. Let me check whether I miss some of the comments or questions. Okay, Natasha, please. Thanks, thanks, Xiaotian. Thank you so much, Anna. This is absolutely fascinating. I'm afraid this is very dif different territory from what I'm used to. So I apologize in advance if my question is, um, is, a, is a silly one uh, because behavioral economics is completely new to me, but I, I totally understand why you do it. And it sounds very important and, and fascinating. But one thing I wondered is um, kind of the, the aim of this or the, or the, the outcome in terms of, um, is the, the point of the, or is part of the point of the behavioral analysis to inform the shaping of legal norms or is it more about policy advice and how, or how, to, how to train people on the ground or is it a bit of a mix of, or, or something that I have completely overlooked? I'm just curious about that. Thank you. Um, thanks, Natasha. So um, if you allow me, I share another PowerPoint. 
where I have a nice graph where you see how and what we can, is that okay for you? Um, yes, thank you. Okay. Um, let me see, I have to open it quickly. Um, so that was a presentation on, um, it's called a roadmap and some stop signs. Um, we're using behavioral insights in international law. So it can be many things like, like um, you can use it in, well, I, I share my screen quickly. Um, so um, what you see here is like, um, um, so, so what you see here is basically, so you behave, have behavioral science interventions and here this is the targeted actor. So you can, from an international, you can target um, um, the national level. So you can say you give advice or give guidelines that can be in different normative forms, soft law, treaty law, whatever, in order to nudge consumers or business. So this was a presentation in the context of sustainable development. And this is of course something, but you know, look at the WHO, right? So you would, for example, the WHO guidelines on plain packaging, um, tobacco plain packaging, um, they would be ultimately targeting consumers, but of course, in the first step, they target um, the states, which then transform. On the national, international level, you can use it in, 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 in the process um, of negotiations. Like, for example, we do have some studies on whether it matters whether you have positive lists or negative lists when you negotiate, for example, trade or the service agreement. Um, we also have insights on, and that's more the substantive level of the treaty, um, on the, the that default rules matter. So there has been this fantastic study by Jean Galbraith that uh, whether you use the jurisdiction of the ICJ or any other international court um, uh, as an opt-in or opt-out. Um, so if it's in the treaty and you need to make a reservation, it's an opt-out. Many more states stay in. Whereas if you have an additional protocol, like for example, in the human rights treaties, then much less states get in. And, and so, so it shouldn't matter from a rational perspective because you would assume, well, the state knows whether it wants to have to accept jurisdiction or not, but it matters. Um, and, and, you know, reservations are very, reservations and objections to reservations are a super interesting topic on that, right? Um, so for example, I would say, especially in human rights treaties, we would need to design it differently. Um, so, uh, so, so it can be used either in the process of negotiation. Um, and again, here also diplomats are trained in rational choice negotiation theory. And we would say, well, this is probably insufficient. And there has been so many writings on, on impediments to negotiation success. Um, if you, totally stay in a, in a rational choice framework. So, so it might matter for diplomats and negotiators to use behavioral insights, but also for the treaty text. And then of course it can be used in international organizations. That's the last sentence of the quote of Antonio Guterres, which I had put uh, in order to ameliorate the internal workings of the international organizations, but also, and that's more the CCHN project, help their own people to de-bias in their work, okay? Or 
help them to be able, and that's also the aim of the CCHN with this sort of training, is that to see behavioral biases and heuristics in their counterparties in order to be able to use them and have a better negotiation result from a humanitarian perspective, okay? And then international organizations, and that's what I had said when I used the, the um, um, uh, yeah, um, in, they can use it in between themselves as well. So there are many, many, many um, um, uh, possibilities. I hope that answers your question. It does. Is, you know, that most of that, you can all do this conceptually. You can all use all those biases and heuristics which we have, which we know about, and apply them like this. Like, you know, I can do this as my desk. And we could have gone to CCHN, as I said, and said, give them a training handbook and say, well, you know, those are all the biases, they exist. Those are likely to come up in humanitarian negotiations. Train your people on that. Or we can say, well, maybe they are different. Because there is, we know, there is a problem with external validity of those experiments because they are mainly conducted with students because we can so easily conduct experiments with students and we, it's so difficult to get the real persons to do this, right? Does that answer it? It does. Thank you so much, Anna. It's, I'm glad to see in a way that it has so many potential applications because it, it sounds like it's something that would be really useful in a lot of different contexts. I had just one more question, if you don't mind, Chris. Thank you. And, and you don't mind uh, too, Anna. Thank you very much. It was about the process for how you come up with the vignettes, um, because they seem very carefully constructed as a kind of, you know, the good, the, the sort of test, test cases, test examples. And I just wondered if you are drawing on experiences, particular experiences, how you, how you pick, how you, how you frame those, those vignettes and those questions i know i know some of them are deliberately uh, abstractly framed and deliberately framed using humanitarian issues but sometimes i think it can be quite tricky to know how to or to come up with the wording they seem they must be have to be very carefully monitored so i just wondered about i was curious about the process that you go through when you're writing those uh, yeah and, and that's actually the most time intensive um so so you know a, a study like this um we started in 2018 right and we finished this year and that's only the first study um well some some of it was also due to covid and stuff like that but um yes designing the vignette is the most difficult part um and you know it starts with um we had something on vaccination expiry or something like that. And then we talked to a medical doctor. He said, no, no, this is medically wrong. And people are like, 